Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simona. Welcome back for another episode. On the evening of November 18, 1978, Prime Minister Forbes Burnham received word of an attack or possible plane crash at the Port Katuma airstrip. This attack resulted in injuries and the death of U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan and five others. Burnham had sparse details, but he knew Jonestown had something to do with it and that they had access to their own weapons. So 120 men from the Guyanese Defense Force made their way into the jungle to assess the situation. Y'all, it's a six-mile trek from the Port Katuma airstrip to Jonestown, and the GDF, who were undertrained themselves, they knew that a fight was imminent. But instead of a fight, they were first met with the stench of rot and death as they marched through the jungle. The previous day, a violent storm had swept through the jungle, so a thick layer of fog covered the ground, making it hard to see as they entered the compound. First was the smell, then they realized that there was no noise, no birds, crickets, or the usual hum of the insects. As they made their way to the pavilion, the sound of one soldier, then another, and another broke the silence as the fog lifted, revealing bodies. Bodies were everywhere, y'all. There were bodies on top of bodies, bodies of men, women, children, and infants, twisted and contorted from convulsions. Dead mothers still holding their babies, whole families with their arms wrapped around each other, and the scene was described as innumerable heaps of the dead in every single direction in advanced stages of decay. Jonestown was no more. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. All right, y'all. So let's go ahead and dive in. Coach AJ has joined me today because corporate America's wearing Sammy the fuck out. Um, but Coach knows a lot about this case, <laughs> and I appreciate you joining me today. No doubt. I'm I'm ready to just leave Jim Jones and his fuckery, purge all of it here today on this episode. Now, y'all, I moved part. I moved Jonestown part one to the slot before this one, so y'all can listen back to back. And it's been a minute since we discussed this. Just now, we kept finding out new shit. All right, like this case mm -hmm. is very much in depth. Now, if you haven't listened to part one or need a refresher, play it back because Sammy and I discussed Jim Jones and his background. We also went into how the People's Temple was created and started to touch on Guyana. And you knew more about Jonestown before I ever did. So can you talk mm -hmm. about that for a sec? Yeah, no doubt. So I watched uh, a, just a documentary on YouTube one night and um, I was like, what the heck is Jonestown? And I was like, in Guyana, you know, I was just kind of figuring out what, what this was, what the story was. So I was so intrigued. It was like a couple part series and I was so intrigued to like what the story was, what happened. So I actually went home and spoke to my mom about it because this happened, you know, in the 70s. And I remember mm -hmm. her just saying, like, yeah, you know, the people them that just signed off their houses to uh, to this <laughs> one man. And I'm like, ma, there's more to it. And after you and I started kind of doing some research on it, I really realized there's even more than what I thought at that time. So when when we say that we're here to purge and, you know, give you all this information and y'all can take it as you, as you want, we mm -hmm. need to release it because there's so much little intricate pieces in this episode. 
Absolutely. Very well put. And so let me plug this info for y'all really quick. I read Road to Jonestown and Seductive Poison. I will be linking these books and the docs I watched in the show notes. Um, Actually, there were more books that went into this. So y'all go ahead and check that out uh, so y'all can get all that good information. Road to Jonestown gave me the facts and Seductive uh, Poison does give insight to the POV of one of the People's Temple survivors, Deborah Layton. Just for a little recap, People's Temple was created by Jim Jones in 1954, and in November of 1978, concerned relatives led by the Congressman Leo Ryan flew from the United States to Guyana with reporters. The concerned relatives were hoping that they would be able to bring their loved ones back with them, and these people were under the impression that uh, their loved ones were being held against their will by Jim Jones. Now, the arrival of Leo Ryan resulted in a bloodbath and the massacre of the People's Temple in Jonestown. Today, the word Jonestown can mean a couple different things. You could be referring to the People's Temple Agricultural Project, which was in Guyana. The mass suicide murder of over 900 of the People's Temple members via potassium cyanide in 1978. Or you could use the word Jonestown basically as a cautionary tale to describe any new religious movement which may or may not have the potential for violence. Although the majority of the Jonestown massacre victims were Black women, decades after this tragedy, Black women's voices remain marginalized in Jonestown literature. Hence why I'm going to be telling y'all this case from the lens of the people who made Jonestown what it was. And I will be linking all the books and info once again, because I feel like their voices should rise above everything else. We're going to dive in deep with this one, y'all, because y'all got to know this series of events that were basically nails in the coffin for the People's Temple members. Um, But first, I want to scale back a bit and tell y'all about some key defectors, the life in Guyana, Leo Ryan, and then major trigger warning for mental and emotional abuse, sexual assault, and mass death. Do you got any questions before we dive in? <laughs> I don't know. I, like part after this, or maybe during this, you may be seeing like maybe we need some holy water, y'all, because let's <laughs> this fuckery. this story. It's just complete and utter fuckery. Um, and I think the the saddest part about it, you're gonna kind of pinpoint that wow, this shit actually can happen again. So let's go ahead and keep going into it. If we don't learn about our history, we're doomed to repeat it. So. Prior to moving to Guyana, Jim Jones was well-respected outside the People's Temple for setting up a racially integrated church, which helped the disadvantaged. Claire Gennaro, who's a previous People's Temple member, she said, if you showed up as a stranger to a service and didn't know about the politics, you would have thought People's Temple was an old-time religious Black church. And remember in part one, Sammy told us about the revivals and how lively these services were. But Jim Jones was strategically targeting poor black and brown communities and was successful recruiting people because even if you had money, you couldn't escape racism. Like black folk, we had it fucking bad during those times, y'all. We lost Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Medgar Evers, just to name a few. And then People's Temple Mm -hmm. was founded around the time that Emmett Till went to Money, Mississippi. Uh, So Jim Crow was alive and kicking. Uh, So yeah, between slavery, lynchings, to have gone through all that, now you see this congregation that is integrated and a leader who condemns racism and helps marginalized communities. Not to mention, it didn't matter if you had like 
a sketchy past. Like you could have been drug or alcohol addicted. Mm-hmm. You just had to get clean. Yeah, like you just and and I think that's that's a, a key point right there is who he kind of targeted, right? Mm-hmm. Like at that moment where all you know we've lost a lot of great leaders. You know, we're talking about Martin Luther King, Meteor Evgers, Malcolm X. They're sitting right now at that at this at that point dealing with the Jim Crow era. Like there's so many things. You have the Emmett Till thing that's going on. Like, there's just so much that's happening. And mm-hmm. uh, I can't help but think that he targeted. He targeted people he knew that would follow him. Exactly. He's such a piece of shit. Like, Big we'll get into it. <laughs> Big dirty piece of shit. So Deborah Layton, as I mentioned earlier, the author of Seductive Poison, said that every single person felt that they had a purpose there and that they were exceptionally special. And that is how he brought in so many college kids and so many older Black women. Basically, there was such a diverse background. Everyone understood their purpose was much bigger than themselves. Now, People's Temple members, they had access to dental, healthcare, room and board, car services. Basically, they wanted for nothing. So outside looking Mm -hmm. in, you see this man who has Mm -hmm. strong connections with the California welfare system. And at the time, the church was owned and ran at least nine residential care homes and six foster homes, along with a ranch for developmentally disabled people as well. They had a lot going on. They they had a lot. And if you think about it, like the staple or the foundation of it was kind of good in the beginning, like in the, in the beginning, right? Like considering the time that they're at, think about it like this was maybe a little bit unheard of to have such connections with the welfare system uh it's a church that has residential care homes foster homes uh a ranch helping people with the disabilities like they were a little bit ahead of their time in a sense right but it, it like it had good it had some good it had good until it didn't. Now, the thing until about it, it is that <laughs> until it didn't. And so the thing about <laughs> it is that People's Temple, literally, that was the next thing. It was like a bad fruit that was rotting mm-hmm. from the inside out. And the rotten core was Jim Jones and those who were most devoted to him. Uh, so something to keep in mind is how the People's Temple is organized. Jim Jones couldn't manage everything by himself. So there is a hierarchy to this organization. And I do believe we covered that as well in part one. And now, once you look at the structure of the People's Temple, you will see exactly where the majority fell. And when I say majority, I mean black and brown folk. So at the top, mm-hmm. as in the closest to Jim Jones, were college-educated white women. And these women were overseers for important missions. Closest to him was Carolyn Layton, Sharon Amos, Maria Katsaris, to name a few. All these women shared the same mindset, which was that the ends justified the means, y'all. Next was the planning commission, and this was the People's Temple Governing Board. Basically, they planned out the day-to-day and scheduled meetings. All decisions, financials, legal planning, and oversight went through these people. And if you wanted to be in a relationship, get married to, or, oh shit, I hit my mic, I'm not cutting shit out, or divorce someone within the congregation, the approvals went through the planning commission. Also, this planning commission sat atop other commissions from different locations. Towards the bottom of this structure, we have what others called the troops. Hmm. The troops were 70 to 80% Black and were tasked with setting up spaces, filling offering boxes, and other tasks and projects. 
So that's how he had this set up. Mind you, it's an integrated mm-hmm. church, but as you can see from this mm-hmm. hierarchy, privileged mm-hmm. white women surrounded him. And at one point, he was only sleeping with white women till one black woman called him out. Mm. Mm-hmm. Notice who's at the bottom. <laughs> Literally. Like, no, no, for real. Like, notice how he set it up. He had an integrated church, right? He was, he really promoted. And, and this is why I say he, he knew who he was targeting. Because yeah. how do you have it set up that way? Wouldn't, wouldn't, if it was mixed, let's say, for example, if he had some of the people who would quote unquote were troops have other roles. Yeah, okay, fine. But he literally had who doing the manual labor. Exactly. Okay. You'll see that that is consistent through and through until the very end. Uh, so Jim Jones fled to Guyana six weeks before New West dropped a critical article about the People's Temple and why Jim Jones should be investigated. There is a small contradiction concerning exactly how Jim Jones knew about the expose prior to its release. According to Deborah Layton, Jim Jones received a call from a New West editor who read him the article, but according to Marshall Kilduff and co-journalist Phil Tracy, they were never able to reach him for comment. Another widely accepted theory is that Jim Jones's attorney, Charles Gary, suggested he leave to get away from New West writers and to protect himself. Either way, August 1st of 1977, New West Magazine dropped the article and each page was fucking tea. It was devastating. Mm. But keep in mind, in 1972, Lester Kinsolving dropped the Kinsolving series, which ran in the San Francisco Examiner and the Indianapolis Star. This series had allegations of physical abuse, financial misdeeds, the fake-ass healings, and other <laughs> scandalous events. Yeah, them fake-ass healings. Yep. That shit Big pissed me off so bad sh- when we were watching oh, the man. when we were watching the uh YouTube that one mm-hmm. white lady knew good and damn well was oh. running up running up and down, you know, the alleyways. The church like, pubes, walk, yeah. And she was a secretary. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what she was. One thing that New West had that Lester didn't was pictures of the people who made the allegations making the expose more real. Mention was Jim Jones and his connection to politicians and the violence that often occurred within the walls of the temple. They took a deep dive into the background of Jim Jones with the help of the Myrtles, the Gang of Eight, Gray Stowen, and other defectors who had become disenchanted with Jim Jones and the People's Temple. And I just want to get into who some of these people were real quick. So the Myrtles were mm-hmm. Deanna Myrtle, Elmer Myrtle, and their five children. They joined the People's Temple in 1969 and defected in 1975, a year after their daughter was smacked 75 times with a paddle at a temple meeting. Deanna and Elmer had received spankings with the belt a few times, but they grew to rationalize the abuse. Their daughter was punished because she had hugged and kissed a female friend who was suspected to be a lesbian. But I don't get that because I thought Jim Jones was telling everybody that they were gay anyway. Mm -hmm. So I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to understand. Uh, So now their daughter was only 16 years old and the beating was so severe that they said that her backside looked like hamburger meat. Deanna and Elmer were really pissed off because Jim Jones had convinced them to sign their property over to the temple so it could be cared for while they were away on the trip. And I believe that they were going to Guyana, Uh, but the trip was canceled. So they go to ask for their property back and then they were refused by the planning committee. 
Beating their daughter was the last drone they defected. Deanna and Elmer went on to change their names to Jeannie and Al Mills because Jim Jones had forced them, along with other members, to sign their names on blank sheets of paper that could be filled with incriminating misdeeds that they didn't commit. So in respects to the name change, that's how I will be referring to them going forward. The Mills didn't go to the press right away. They went to the police and they told the authorities about their properties and that Jim Jones was smuggling guns to Guyana. Then they went on to co-found their support group for people fleeing cults. Now, this group job would later be called the Concerned Relatives of People Temple members. I got a question. Uh-huh. What What was the exact purpose of the Concerned Relatives of People people's temple members that's one hell of a title but what was their (laughs) what was the exact purpose of their of their group basically everybody who had defected from the people's temple who knew about the fuckery that was going on you know within that inner circle and who had grievances Mm -hmm. like people who they're people who ended up joining the concerned relatives of people's temple members. They had signed over their children for the purpose of communal living and then could not get their children back. They had signed over property. They were abused. Deborah Layton was raped. And mm. there, were, there was more than one who came forward with sexual abuse allegations. So they would join the concerned relatives of the people's temple members. And as I put before, it was like a support group. Because mind you, they were seeing people, somebody might defect, and then they would die under mysterious circumstances. So you got to have a group that you can go to for support with that shit, you know? No, for real, for real, for real. Yeah, so I'm going to now talk about Tim Stowen, who was the husband of Grace Stowen. So after graduating from Stanford Law School... Tim Stowen joined the Mendocino County DA's office in the late 60s. He found he needed some help renovating the legal aid offices, and it was suggested he contact the People's Temple Church in Red Valley. In 1970, Tim Stowen moved to the Temple's headquarters and began providing legal aid since he was already working as a deputy district attorney. 1970 is also the year he married Grace Stowen. Grace was brought into the group and she quickly rose in ranks and would receive the title as head counselor in the planning committee. Jim Jones was attracted to Grace Stowen and they began a sexual relationship in 1971. Between, yeah, so, and you know what? I read in the book that he had his eyes on Grace for a long time, but he didn't want to lose Tim Stowen because, you know, district attorney. Yeah, he had power. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's the gall on this man. <laughs> the fucking audacity. Now, uh, yeah, so they begin the sexual relationship between Tim Stowen's memoir and other resources. The clear-cut story is this. Grace disliked who the fuck Jim Jones was as a person, but believed in the social missions. And as much as Grace couldn't stand Jim, she also couldn't stand her husband, Tim, either. According to Tim Stowen, oh. they began having an open marriage and this was when jim jones took the opportunity to sleep with grace and she became pregnant with a son named john victor gave birth to him in february of 1972 this is when jim jones goes to tim stowen and he tells him okay i'm the biological father of john victor and tim stowen believed this and agreed to sign a document stating that he allowed jim jones to sleep with his wife because he was unable to have children. Wait. <laughs> he signed off his wife? 
Basically, not you saying it like that. I mean, I mean, call call it call it what it is. Apples (laughs) to oranges. Like he basically signed off his wife. The wife gets pregnant, and (laughs) no, but uh, Jim Jones went to Tim Stone after she had already given birth to John Victor. So it's not that he said, "Yeah, you can sleep with my wife beforehand." Jim Jones heard that they were Mm -hmm. in an open open marriage. Mind you, everything has marriage. to go to the planning committee. You don't have secrets in the People's Temple. The only person with secrets Jeez. is Jim Jones. Uh, Jim so, Jones. Yeah, so, mm-hmm, so there's that. Wow. Uh, so Tim Stowen claims that he never thought this document would have held up in court because it wasn't an official affidavit. By 1976, Grace was over Jim Jones and the People's Temple, and she had witnessed the beating of Peter Watherspoon. See, Peter was a pedophile, y'all, and he was allowed to become a member of the People's Temple under the condition that he wouldn't try to prey on the children. A 10-year-old boy went to the planning committee and said that Peter sexually assaulted him. As punishment, Peter was ordered to undress and lay his genitals on a table, and it was said that his penis and testicles were beaten with a rubber hose until they were swollen. And this beating was so brutal, it was one of the reasons that Grace Dillon, Neva Sly, Joyce Shaw, and Liz Foreman defected. It was a sight, and so they did this publicly in front of the planning committee. And that was enough for her to start to say, yo, I'm out. (laughs) I'm out. Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day... I just day, wish that okay. they had to call the police along with that. Cause, uh... That's what I'm saying. Like, first of all, the description of what they did, like, wow. But I still think, instead of taking matters in their own hand, they should have just called the authorities and had them deal with him. And had him remo- oh. removed. Period. But You know how churches like to keep things in the house? <laughs> I mean, that's another episode. <laughs> okay. Uh, so now... Uh, they defected, uh, Grace Doe and Neva Sly, Joyce Shaw, and Liz Foreman, they all defected separately, but Grace defected with a man named Walter Jones, and then I do believe that they became an item later on. Uh, so when Grace Doan left, she left without John Victor, and different accounts of why all support the idea that she wanted to protect him. John Victor was with his communal guardians, and Grace knew that there was no way in hell that she would be able to take him and leave without anyone noticing. Grace said, I wanted to take John, but I didn't have him physically, and I felt like I didn't have him psychologically. All the time John was alive, people were telling me I wasn't good enough for him, that he was more intelligent than I, and that I wasn't a good mother, end quote. After defecting, Grace started the paternity case to get John Victor back, so it was really immediate. Like, she boogied the fuck out of there, and then immediately Mm -hmm. started to work on trying to get that boy back. Uh, So Grace was previously pressured into signing documents saying that John Victor could go to Guyana. Uh, Tim Stowen agreed John Victor could go as well. Tim stated in his memoir that he figured John Victor wouldn't be in Guyana long because Jim Jones probably wasn't going to be either because he was enjoying the fame and fortune that he was receiving in San Francisco. But what Grace didn't know was that Jim Jones had John Victor taken away to Guyana so that he could avoid a custody battle. Now, I mentioned how Joyce Shaw defected around the same time as Grace Stowen. Well, in early October of 1976, her husband, Bob Houston, was found mutilated in the Southern Pacific Railroad Yard. Jim Jones often said that if he left the People's Temple, something bad would happen. Some people knew that this was a threat, but others thought it was just a prediction and a warning. 
Either way, Jim Jones wasn't aware that Bob Houston's father, Sam Houston, had the ear of Congressman Leo Ryan. They worked closely because Sam Houston was a photographer for the Associated Press. Congressman Leo Ryan worked for the 11th District, and that covered the Bay Area. By all accounts, he was very popular amongst his voters, but not so much in the House of Reps. Leo Ryan's colleagues thought that he was an attention seeker and dramatized the things that he did for the purpose of good press. But the people saw a man who requested to be jailed so he could investigate prison corruption and a man who jumped in front of hunters who were basically about to kill a baby seal. Leo Ryan served at the pleasure of the public, y'all, and he is crucial to the downfall of the House of Jim Jones. Now, Sam Houston goes and he brings his concerns to Leo Ryan, who figured that it was appropriate to investigate the allegations about the church. Jim Jones had preached countless times, and I quote, you have got to help yourself or you'll get no help. There's only one hope of glory, and that is within you. Nobody's going to come out of the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. So we're about to get into the agricultural project, y'all. One man said that he, when he first came to Jonestown, there was only a footpath in the rainforest, and the footpath transformed into an entire city, and they made that possible 300 miles into the Guyanese jungle. A Tim Carter, a People's Temple survivor, is quoted saying that he thought they were building a city where they could move and raise their children far from oppression and racism in the United States. So when Jim Jones decided to boogie the fuck out to Jonestown, it basically happened overnight and people followed, leaving behind no explanation to their family members and friends. Marceline, Jim Jones's wife, didn't think that he would stay in Guyana, so she simply told people that Jim was going until things with New West article had blown over. Basically, everybody in the outer circle thought he was God's gift of fucking man, but as you get closer to the inner circle, nobody took this man serious. Nobody thought that he was really mm-hmm. about to go and stay in Guyana because people were licking his ass in San Francisco. So why would he leave all of that fame, fortune, money to go be in the jungle? And the people closest to Jim Jones knew that. Sammy had said it towards the end of part one, but I feel like it should be made perfectly clear that Jonestown was in good standing prior to the arrival of Jim Jones and the hundreds of followers that he brought with him. Like they had to work hard to build and grow crops on the compound. And they said that it was rewarding and that their nights were filled with music and movies and they were far away from the watchful eyes of the planning committee and their weekly punishments. I have a question. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt you. But this is before Jim Jones punk ass got down there, right? Yes. Like them having the nights of good vibes and stuff like that? Yep. Good vibes, good music, movies. All of that changed when Jim Jones came in. All of it. Mm. Yeah. And shit got so much more stressful. And that's the perfect segue into this. So the pioneers of Guyana... They were told that the influx would be gradual and, you know, like slow, and they were not prepared for hundreds of people to show up randomly. So now the physical workload increased because they had to build more cottages and other facilities. Some would describe this uh, promised tropical paradise as a slave camp mm-hmm. once Jones took over. Like there was not Damn. enough food or sleep, but there was more than enough fear. They said when Jim Jones was present, it was like a dark cloud. And in Jonestown, there was a speaker system and only Jim Jones could use it. 
this speaker system went on a 24-hour rotation, so they had to always hear his voice. And it didn't matter where you were on the compound. You could have been taking the shit, and this motherfucker is talking about the CIA and how they're going to come Hell in and no. take our kids and, and this and that. And he said things were getting worse in the United States and that they could never go back home and that those evil forces were making their way to Guyana. So for the first several months, Temple members worked six days a week from 6.30 a.m. until 6 p.m. with the hour for lunch. After the day's work ended, the Temple members would attend several hours of activities in the pavilion and were forced to take classes on socialism. Jim Jones compared the schedule to the North Korean system of eight hours of daily work, followed by eight hours of study. This went with the Temple's practice of gradually subjecting its followers to mind control and behavior modification techniques. So some people flew to Guyana thinking that um, if they didn't like it, they could just return back to the, to the States. But they were so mm-hmm. Jonestown is very remote and very hard to access because it's located 150 miles away from the Guyanese capital, Georgetown. To get to Jonestown, you could fly or use a boat to get to Port Katuma. Uh, but by boat, it would take a week or more. Once they made it, it was impossible to leave. All their passports, their identification, money that they had, it went to the inner circle. And concerned relatives, they would try to send mail, but that mail was filtered, as was the outgoing mail as well. They only allowed letters out that requested money and had nothing but positive words and praise for the Jonestown compound. Let's go ahead and get into their money situation. Jonestown's monthly expenses was already putting that pocketbook in the red every month. But sometime in 1977, the Social Security office told the post office to stop forwarding Social Security checks to Guyana. And the FCC also began looking into Jim Jones due to the noise the concerned relatives were creating, you know, back in the States. Grace Stowen mm-hmm. had joined uh, Jeannie and Al Mills, as did others who defected in the spring of 1977. They came together as the concerned relatives of People's Temple members. Jim Jones at the time was sitting on what would roughly be around $42 million in today's money. Uh, but People's Temple members were basically eating slop, like gravy-covered rice they just smothered in gravy it was slop and the only time that they had a good bountiful meal was when visitors came to jonestown to check on the conditions of the people's temple members in the compound while everyone else is crammed in cabins and showering with polluted water jim jones's thick fat ass is sitting up in a nice ass cabin with access to good food and soda pop he got candy bars and he's living it up with his wife and his mistresses Wow. So, yeah, it was hell on earth for the People's Temple members, hence why Jim Jones had to make sure the compound looked good for outside visitors. Each visit was staged perfectly, but punishments were doled out if somebody stepped out of line. And just keep that in mind for later. So, although Jonestown contained no dedicated prison and no form of form of capital punishment, just like back in Red Valley, the planning committee created different forms of punishment all dependent on the crime. Methods of punishment included imprisonment in a six by four by three foot plywood box and forcing children to spend a night at the bottom of a well, sometimes upside down. This torture hole, along with beatings Wait, wait, I I hate to cut you. You said mm -hmm. upside down? They were sometimes up children. Yeah. Children, Wait, like this is 
obviously this is where the darkness part comes in because before we forget this was a church yeah this was a church y'all so the fact that it got to that point where these mind you there's adults around these children so the fact that it got to the point where they couldn't realize that this is far removed from what a church really does goes to show you how powerful of a hold he had over these people exactly that mind control is a bitch and yeah they they said uh one of the survivors said picture being in a dysfunctional family how you begin mm. to rationalize the fuckery i mean he had them in hot boxes like fucking broom hilda from Django. like mm, yeah imagine trying to, to rationalize imagine trying to rationalize um you know that type of punishment uh, so now this torture hole, along with beatings, became a rumor among the Guyanese. So the Guyanese would whisper like, hey, you see what the fuck going on in Jonestown? I hear that they're doing this. And so rule breakers were isolated from everyone else and were forced to run e everywhere as punishment. Uh, so in Seductive Poison, Deborah Layton mentioned that when she first arrived at Jonestown, that was one of the first things she noticed. Um, like there would be teenagers who had gotten in trouble who would run from point A to B to C, so on and so forth. And so for some members who tried to escape, drugs were brought into the picture. So stuff like Thorazine, which is a, used as a treatment for schizophrenia, bipolar and extreme behavioral issues in children. Sodium pentalon, which is used in general anesthesia. Chlorohydrate, which is a hypnotic, Demerol, which is an opioid, and Valium, which is a different host of things, were administered in an extended care unit. See, I'm using air bunnies. Uh, so keep that in mind for later. <laughs> uh, so now, every night, Jim Jones would drag everyone to the pavilion after a long day of slaving and teachings to make addresses to temple members regarding their safety. But really, he was just trying to instill fear in everyone. He wasn't telling them the real news. He was feeding them horrific information about how the CIA would come for them and their children. And his goal was to create an atmosphere at Jonestown that made temple members fear the outside world. Jim Jones had preached blackness should be celebrated because the concept of blackness was always associated with bad things, like you got the Black Plague or Black Witchcraft, for example. Uh, so black folks were never seen as human due to the color of their skin. He took that and he was preaching how we should associate evil with the opposite. Ultimately, Jim Jones referred to moments of crisis and despair as white nights. The first white night was September of 1977. Jim Jones became aware of Grace's fight for John Victor, and he knew her claim to her son could potentially tear Jonestown apart. Grace Stone was also in the process of divorcing Tim Stowen, and the judge presiding over that, his name was Judge Donald King, he awarded her custody of her son. Up until that moment, Jim Jones thought that parents who had signed over their rights couldn't get their kids back. If he lost the youth, what would make the adults stay? And so John Victor was to be returned to Grace Stowen, but Jim Jones thought that he could ignore this verdict. So Grace Stowen and her attorney flew to fucking Guyana, and this triggered the first white night. So during the first white night, Jim Jones made everyone stay up for days on end to guard Jonestown and to allegedly protect the children. To make everyone feel as if this danger was real, he had one of his sons go out with a gun and said, okay, when the time comes, son, I need you to shoot at me. 
but nobody's going to shoot at you. You're going to be safe. And I think it was Jim Jones Jr. I'm sorry, y'all, if I'm incorrect about that. I didn't write it down. Mm-hmm. But he, the, his son does what he says. He goes out and he fires a shot at Jim Jones. Immediately, the security people started shooting back at his son. And Jim mm-hmm. Jones, he wouldn't manipulate people like that. He would tell you, okay, one thing's about to happen, but it would be a completely uh, different scenario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so these people really thought that soldiers were coming in to take over Jonestown, torture their children, rape them, kill them. They were petrified. And this was all because Jim Jones did not want to give up John Victor or go to jail for keeping him against court orders. During other white nights, Jim Jones would sometimes give the Jonestown members four options, attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, commit revolutionary suicide, stay in Jonestown, and fight the purported attackers, or flee into the jungle. On at least two occasions during white nights after revolutionary suicide vote was reached, a simulated mass suicide was rehearsed. And I want to point out something to y'all. Tim Carter said that when they were asked how many of them would die, only a few people raised their hands. At this point, you got over 900 people at this this damn compound, but only a handful of people are willing to die for the revolutionary cause. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, let's keep that Mm -hmm. in mind. Like, there's a reason that this is not called a mass suicide anymore. It was a massacre. Deborah Layton described uh, the event in an affidavit. She said, and I quote, Everyone, including children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did as we were told. When the time came when we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would be necessary for us to die by our own hands, end quote. The thing about that is, is that these were supposed loyalty tests, but you're telling them Mm -hmm. that it's poison after they have digested it. Like, let's not forget that the first few times that this happened, these people were completely blindsided. It first happened with the planning committee. And one thing Mm y'all have to keep in mind is that the left hand did not know what the fuck was happening with the right hand. Like, it was... In Jonestown, you couldn't talk to one another. So something that happened in the in the planning committee may not have spilled out to the rest of the congregation. So the planning committee first went through this. Then they did it again in Jonestown. So they don't know that it's alleged poison until they've already drunk it. How the fuck is that a loyalty test? Yeah, that's not <laughs> and, no damn loyalty test. Yeah, and you've already asked these people how many of y'all are willing to die and only eight people raised their hand? Okay. Eight people after how many, like, uh, hundreds of people that were there? Exactly. Mind y'all, Jim Jones, at this point, he is taking a lot of different drugs. It was, yeah, it had him slurring his speech. It had him making dumbass decisions. And so we'll get into that in a bit. Now, there were other tests conducted to make sure Jim Jones had everyone under his control. One night he said, I will send someone out tonight and they will act like they want to leave. I want y'all to turn them in, end quote. This tore families and friends apart because telling no lies and snitching was rewarded. You were less likely to be punished because there is this rule. If you saw something and didn't say something that was that basically was just as bad as whatever act was being committed. You know how when we were children, like, 
mm-hmm. everybody in this bitch about to get punished because y'all just don't know what the fuck one happened. person <laughs> yeah yeah that's somebody but they're operated so yeah uh so everyone including and especially children picked up on this toxic practice uh, people's te- uh, people's temple gatherings at the pavilion were recorded, and there's one audio of this woman telling this man's business on how he couldn't stick around anymore and his plans for leaving. So basically, he was talking to somebody in confidence. This woman overheard him and then spilled his beans in front of everybody, and then that man had to explain himself. Jim Jones told that he has the power to send him home, but it wouldn't be on an airline. Basically, yeah, you mm-hmm. can fucking go home, but it might be in a coffin. And basically mm-hmm. was screaming at this man, like, is that what you want? This man goes, well, no, that's not what I want. Jim Jones cut him off and said, well, stop speaking and get the fuck out my face. So that's where we were at with how Jim Jones was treating them and speaking to them. So February 16 of 1978, Jim Jones called everyone to the pavilion for a meeting. They were used to Jones ranting about assassination attempts against him or that mercenaries were arriving to Diana to attack Jonestown. The message this time was that an attack was imminent and Guyanese soldiers were spotted in Port Katuma and their intentions were to kill every man, woman, and child in Jonestown. The attack would occur in a matter of hours, so everyone was to line up and drink poison so they could rob their enemies of their triumph. They were surrounded by armed guards, and those who protested were pushed to the front of the line. Ultimately, everyone drank from the vat of poison because they knew that this was another drill to test their loyalty just like the White Knights. Basically, they're just getting fucking tired. But what Tim Carter said that he noticed was that the armed guards that surrounded them, they were pointing the guns inward and not outward, as they normally did. The guns were pointed Mm. at them. So as suspected, Jim Jones looked around and told them it wasn't poison. And for passing his test, chores were canceled for the rest of the day. And they were basically like, you know what, motherfucker, we are so mentally and physically exhausted and drained. Like, we're just happy to go back to the cabin and get more rest. Not long after this event, Jim Jones ordered Larry Shat, which was the doctor um, in the, you know, He was no damn doctor. No, that man was a crackhead, all right? So yeah, he ordered Larry Shat to order one pound of sodium cyanide. The order cost $8.85 and was enough for 1,800 lethal doses. Wow. So yeah, that's where we're at. So April 11th of 1978, concerned relatives, along with friends and media, they marched right on up to the People's Temple location in San Francisco, and they demanded to speak to whoever was in charge. People's Temple survivor Hugh Fortson, he goes out to speak to them, and he's handed a a copy of a 48-page document that is titled Accusation of Human Rights Violations by Rev. James Warren Jones Against Our Children and Relatives at the People's Temple Jungle Encampment in Guyana, South Africa. That is a long-ass title. Now, Jim Jones was made aware of this document quickly and forced everyone to participate in another white night. At this point, Jim Jones has begun to lose control. No other country was willing to accept them at this time, and the United States, they was eating his ass up. And so there was a warrant also for his arrest. So the arrival of Leo Ryan was the last straw. 
On November 14, 1978, Leo Ryan flew to Georgetown along with his then-legal advisor, Jackie Spear, Guyana's Ministry of Information rep, Neville Annaborn, Deputy Chief of the U.S. Embassy to Guyana, Richard Dwyer, and reporters from the San Francisco Examiner, NBC, Washington Post, and the San Francisco Chronicle. The concerned relatives also came, so that was Tim and Gray Stowen, Stephen Anthony Katsaris, Beverly Oliver, Jim Cobb, Sherwin Harris, and Carol Houston. Now, the arrival to Georgetown went without a hitch, but because of the lack of room on the plane, only four of the concerned relatives being Anthony Katsaris, Beverly Oliver, Jim Cobb, and Carol Boyd could come with them. Leo Ryan's party was also accompanied by conspiracy theorist Mark Lane and Jim Jones's lawyer, lawyer Charles Gehring, excuse me. The Stolens did not go because there was a fear that Jim Jones would kill everyone and them if they stepped foot into Jonestown. When they arrived in Guyana, Leo Ryan and the crew were initially refused entrance to Jonestown, but Jim Jones was informed that Ryan and his people were coming regardless of his willingness to allow them in. So only Leo Ryan, Jackie Spear, and a couple of reporters were initially allowed in, and the rest of Leo Ryan's group was allowed in after sunset. That night, they attended a musical reception in the settlement's main pavilion, and basically there was a big old party and that party was jumping. But behind the scenes, Jim Jones said he felt like a dying man and literally started losing his shit, y'all. He was going on rants about the press and his enemies and just a whole lot of other shit. And so earlier I spoke about how Jim Jones would stage everything so visits from outsiders went perfectly. Well, it was later revealed that Jim Jones had run rehearsals on how to convince Leo Bryan that everyone was happy and in good spirits. Do you remember when we watched the YouTube and the YouTube documentary? Uh, Leo Bryan, he gets up and he gives a speech. And he says something along the lines of, um, you know, according to y'all, this is the best thing that has ever happened. And everybody erupted in cheers. Cheers. But Mm -hmm. they didn't stop. They kept going. And then he was like, uh... Uh, are y'all gonna stop at some point? Yeah. That is when they realized it was rehearsed. I was gonna say, it's very, very, very rehearsed. Because, like, Mm -hmm. if you're gonna cheer, you're gonna say, yeah, and then eventually it stops, right? But they kept going. And Y'all, you need know, to understand, they recorded, like, the cheers. And obviously in the documentary, we got to see it cut. But, like, you're just like, okay, like, are they going to stop at some point? They said it went on for, like, five minutes. Ain't nobody going to cheer for no five minutes, though. But they were, re- it was part of the rehearsal. Heavily rehearsed, yeah. It was heavily rehearsed to make it seem like Guyana was, you know, perfect. Like, uh, Jonestown so- was perfect. Exactly. Uh, So now two Temple members, uh, Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, they made the first move for defection that night. So in the pavilion, Vernon Gosney mistook NBC reporter Don Harris for Leo Ryan. And basically he passes him a note that said, Dear Congressman Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, please help us get out of Jonestown. And he remembers that he tried to sneak, uh, he tried to tuck the note in his arm but it fell to the ground and a child nearby saw, saw this and said, oh, he's passing notes, like made a big deal out of it. And this alerted the temple members and Jim Jones knew about this within minutes. Over the course of the party, Don Harris brought two notes, one being uh, being Vernon Gosney's to Leo Ryan and Jackie Spear. Unfortunately, it was alleged that Don Harris didn't immediately act on the note, which resulted in a delay of action. 
According to Spear in 2006, reading the notes caused her and Leo Ryan to realize that something was very, very wrong. Leo Ryan, Jackie Spear, Richard Dwyer, and Neville Annaborn, they stayed the night in Jonestown. Everybody else was basically told to find their own place to fucking stay. I wanted to add something in there because in, um, I forgot the name of the documentary that we did watch together, but uh, in that particular one, Jackie Spear just say that it pour it was pouring rain so she was in her mm-hmm. like little cabin that night and it poured rain and she just said like she had like almost like a spirit that was telling her ooh something's not right we like need she just the fuck one <laughs> yeah but because of where they were like mm-hmm. where are they really going to go at that time at night they were kind of stuck there and i just remember her saying like yeah there's something uneasy and some type of like feeling we as you said we need to get the fuck on like she Mm -hmm. felt it that night yeah she felt it that night and i can't imagine that type of anxiety like so now Mm. regardless of that assessment before dawn nine people had enough goddamn sense to walk away and a couple of those defectors included the wife and son of jonestown's head of security uh his name was his name was joe wilson uh so they left again just before dawn but they slipped the children fruit punch mixed with volume to keep them quiet according to the book road to jonestown the plan was to make their way to, uh through the jungle to the rail line then follow the tracks into matthews ridge from there they would contact u.s officials and ask for help while they're trekking through the goddamn jungle they come across mm-hmm. two other settlers. Imagine that. Like, you're trying to get away like a thief in the night. And then you look over, like, oh, shit, what's that? And they're like, yeah, we're mm-hmm. moving the fuck out, too. We're trying to get out as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so that made the group 11 people. And all of them survived Jonestown. When journalists and members of the concerned relatives arrived in Jonestown later that day, I'm talking about the people who had to find somewhere else to lay their head. Uh, they're given mm-hmm. a tour of the settlement by Marceline. And this is when shit hits the goddamn fan. Later that morning, more people chose to defect. The Parks and the Bogue family, along with Christopher O'Neill and Harold Cordell. Jim Jones gave the two families, along with Vernon Gosney and Monica Bagby, permission to leave. But yeah, for not being held against their will, what the fuck do I need permission for, right? Uh, But basically, he called them liars, claiming that they wanted to destroy Jonestown. A man named Al Simon tried to defect with his two children, but his wife, Bonnie, was summoned by Temple staff, and she completely lost it. Al pleaded with Bonnie to return to the U.S. with him and the kids, but she refused. And this is horrible because I do believe Al Simon's name is on the list of the deceased, along with the rest of his entire family. Yeah. Jeez. At one point, a woman named Edith Parks... She walks up to Jackie Spear and says, I'm being held against my will and I want to go home. Survivors said the air got real tight. Jim Jones basically told mm-hmm. her, like, I just want you to know you can come back and visit anytime you want. But you could see in his face, he was pissed. The man was freaked out. He was pissed and yeah, he felt betrayed. And there's an interview of Jim Jones saying that there was no issue with them leaving, but the reporters needed to leave them alone. And he also said, like, why would they send their children here if it wasn't safe? Jim Jones tried to make pleas at one point, 
And he said, you guys can't leave. You guys are my people. That is when the mask fell. And Jim Jones Mm -hmm. sat in that pavilion with a clear look of betrayal. Just when shit couldn't get worse, he found out about the settlers who boogied the fuck out of Jonestown before dawn. So Mm -hmm. now (laughs) shit is about to hit the fan, y'all. And I will start to trickle in trigger warnings here and there. So a dump truck pulls up so people can get the hell on to Port Katuma. Leo Ryan and Richard Dwyer, they decide to stay behind so that they could process additional defectors. There is fear and anxiety at this point because Jim Jones was sitting back looking at them very lethal. And survivors said that it was like evil just rolled on over, just swept in. Shortly before the dump truck left, was supposed to leave, Larry Layton, the brother of Deborah Layton, demanded to join the group. Several of the defectors were like, hell the fuck, though, because they knew Mm -hmm. that Larry Layton was close to Jim Jones. He wasn't shit. Mm -hmm. He wasn't worth a damn. They knew his motives. And they, yeah, again, they knew that he was very close to Jim Jones, like his right-hand man. Vernon Gosney told Leo Ryan that he was in extreme danger, but his response was that Vernon should have no fear because he had the congressional shield of protection while he was with them. And Vernon was looking at him like, you a motherfucking liar. (laughs) You don't know where you at. Like that congressional shield don't mean a damn where you are right now, sir. Yeah. Exactly. We are hundreds of miles into the Guyanese jungle. That don't mean shit here now. That don't mean shit here right now. Yeah, and so they're looking at Leo Bryan like, no, my man, like, that isn't going to do anything. We have to go. But Leo Bryan was adamant to stay behind to see who else wanted to leave. Now, the dump truck goes to pull off, but can't because of that storm that you mentioned that had happened the night before. Mind mind you guys, we're in the tropical jungle here. These storms Mm -hmm. happen like that. Like, there's no warning. Um, So the dump truck gets stuck in the mud. Brendan Gosney said, like, that was the moment he sat, he sat back and he was like, we're going to fucking die. Like, we're not getting out of here. But mm-hmm. now they began to work to free the truck so they can get the hell out when they hear a loud commotion erupt from the pavilion where Leo Ryan was. See, a man named Don Sly walked up to Leo Ryan and Don's shaking and trembling and everybody's concerned, like, oh, shit, like, do you need to leave too? He turns to Leo Ryan, he pulls out a knife, and says, all right, motherfucker, you're going to die. And then tried to kill him. Like, all it, hell broke loose. <laughs> like, when I say all hell broke loose, and the defectors tried to save his life because you're our congressional shield of protection. Like, right? You're how we gonna get out of here, technically. Like, what the hell? Like, and that, and that also goes to kind of show you that how shit really started to hit the fan. And in many ways, as much as Jim Jones was sitting there chilling in the pavilion, he was in many ways, like kind of instructing them. He was orchestrating all of this. He was orchestrating the entire thing. As much as mm-hmm. he was just sitting back, he was, he already told these people, yo, if shit hits the fan, when they come to attack us, this is what you got to do. So they knew what they had to do. Again, mm-hmm. kind of scared, said, waiting back, this is a church. <laughs> You keep circling no. back to that. Yeah, this was a cult. Because I think we're, this was, this was yeah. basically like masked as a church. And mm-hmm. someone's coming out and saying, look, motherfucker, it's your time to. D- it's your time to die. Yep. Yeah. So at this point, 
all bets were off at that moment because if somebody who has the congressional shield of protection almost just got assassinated, we're shit out of luck. And so at mm-hmm. this point, Jim Jones can be seen again glaring from the pavilion and somebody heard him say, Jonestown has never been more peaceful in that drugged out drawl. So the truck with Leo Ryan, mind you, because yeah, Leo Ryan was like, okay, I got to get the fuck on. So the truck with Leo Ryan, the crews, the concerned relatives and defectors takes off and Marceline hopped on the speakers to tell everyone to return to their cabins. Everybody goes back to their houses. But while this was happening, aides were preparing a large metal tub with grape flavor aids. Now, y'all, I got to say some big words, so bear with me. But this flavor aid was poisoned with diphenhydramine, promethazine, chlorpromazine, chloroquine, chlorohydrate, diazepam, and cyanide. What's chilling is that Jackie Spear recalled seeing Leo Ryan covered in blood and felt like, oh my God, we're so lucky we dodged a bullet. Now, Jim Jones's sons, they were in Georgetown for a basketball tournament. And around 4 p.m., Jim Jones radioed into the temple headquarters located at 41 Lamahar Gardens and spoke with Sharon Amos. Remember, I told y'all Sharon Amos was one of the bitches that were most devoted to Jim Jones. Yeah, no, when y'all hear what she does, you'll think she's a bitch too. Yeah, it's foul. Yeah, it's very foul. He requested to speak to his son. And basically, Sharon Amos and Jim Jones Jr. heard Jim Jones say that it was time to meet Mr. Frazier and that the Avenging Angels were going to visit Leo Ryan. This meant that it was time to commit revolutionary suicide Leo Ryan will be assassinated, and it was Jim Jones Jr.'s duty to avenge their deaths by killing everybody in town. This is from the mouth of Jim Jones's son himself. The method of dying, which was transcribed by Sharon Amos, was knives. Jim Jones Jr. advised for Sharon Amos to be watched because he knew that she would do whatever Jim Jones asked. So him and along with others basically tried to see what they could do to prevent the mass suicide, but it was too late. Vernon Gosney, now back in the truck, <laughs> they're on the truck headed to um, the Port Katuma airstrip, y'all. And so mm-hmm. Vernon Gosney said the feeling in the truck was absolute terror because now everyone is looking at Larry Layton's side eye, wondering what the hell he was doing in the back of that dump truck with him, with them. And they sat in silence basically for the entire six mile drive to Port Katuma. What they didn't know was that 10 minutes after they pulled off y'all, another truck left Jonestown after them. There were more people going back than intended. So a six passenger Cessna aircraft was scheduled along with the original 19 passenger twin otter. So everyone could get to Georgetown safely. Now, the truck arrived at the Katuma airstrip between 4.30 p.m. and 4.45 p.m., but the planes hadn't arrived yet. So finally, around 5.10 p.m., both aircraft showed up and everybody begins to board. Larry Layton was a passenger on the Cesta, which was the first aircraft to take off. Now, two events begin to happen concurrently. The Cesta makes it to the far end of the airstrip before Larry Layton pulled out a handgun and then he started shooting at the passengers. He wounded Monica Bagby and Vernon Gosney and tried to kill Dale Parks, who disarmed him after the gun misfired. While this was happening, the other passengers trying to board the Twin Otter see a truck pull up. And the way that it's described is that 
these men hop out this truck. They have these big ass guns and they begin to slowly look around. Like they're looking everybody in the face. It was clear that they were looking for Leo Ryan. And so there were nine men and they encircled him and then opened fire. The first few seconds of the shooting was captured on videotape by NBC cameraman Bob Brown, who was killed along with Robinson, Don Harris, and Temple defector Patricia Parks. And within the first few minutes of the shooting, Leo Ryan was killed after being shot more than 20 times. More than 20 times. Yeah. So Jackie Spare, Steve Sung, Richard Dwyer, Tim Riederman, Charles Cruz, Ron Havers, Anthony Katsaris, Carolyn Boyd, and Beverly Oliver were the nine injured in and around the Twin Otter. After the shootings, the Cessna's pilot, Tom Fernandez, along with the pilot and co-pilot of the Twin Otter, Captain Guy Spence, and First Officer Astil Paul, as well as injured Monica Bagby, they were able to get in the Cessna and they flew to Georgetown. The damaged Twin Otter and uh, all the other people who were injured from Leo Ryan's delegation, they had to be left behind on the airstrip. And they basically ran and crawled into the jungle where they remained until the Guyanese Defense Force found them. So I Mm. want to point out that, and like, can we just take a second because Mm -hmm. the way Mm -hmm. that this is That's a lot that just happened. Yeah, That is a lot. And the way that this is described by Jackie Spear... Mind you, there were people who were trying to pretend to be dead. Jackie Spears said, yeah. like, yeah, I laid there. Jackie um, was one of them. Mm-hmm. And then they, how can I put this? She said that she was laying there. She was trying her best not to move. She was already shot, mind you. And then they walked up to her and shot her several more times. It just happened so fast. And then they had to crawl into the jungle and they were there for X amount of hours until they were rescued. I think it's important to understand that like, yeah, they were very wounded and they had to crawl into a jungle. And it's not like anyone could just rush and go get to them. Like, you know, like if we have an issue, we could call 911. They had to wait for someone far away to find them. That's gotta be such a traumatic event so traumatic and then the trauma of seeing the Cessna pull off mm-hmm. into the air and then the people in the Cessna knowing okay there were still people moving on the ground so of course like once they got to where they were going like hey like this is what happened but it's a very long flight from Port Katuma to Georgetown so now I want to point out that prior to Leo Ryan being attacked at Jonestown and the Port Katuma airstrip, he had informed Jim Jones's lawyer that he would issue a report that would describe Jonestown in basically good terms. Leo Ryan stated that none of the 60 relatives he had targeted for interviews wanted to leave. The 14 defectors constituted a very small portion of Jonestown's residents. That any sense of imprisonment the defectors had was likely because of peer pressure and a lack of physical transportation. And even if 200 of the 900 plus wanted to leave, I'd still say you have a beautiful place here. So everything that happened next was completely unnecessary. But still, that's kind of shitty of Leo Ryan because you have these people so scared. They're sneaking notes. (laughs) They're sneaking notes to cameramen. Like, hey, like I want to go. I'm being held against my will. I want to leave. Yeah, I want to leave. 
So yeah, come on now. Back at Jonestown, Jim Jones's lawyer, Charles Gary, he's ba basically all happy-go-lucky and he's telling Jim Jones, you know, like, we did it, it's over. Despite Charles Gary's report, Jim Jones told him, like, I failed. He reiterated that Leo Ryan would be making a positive report, but Jim Jones maintained that all was lost. While the shootout was happening at the Port Katuma airstrip back at Jonestown, Jim Jones's voice comes across the speakers demanding that everyone make their way to the pavilion. And this is where I'm going to insert a hefty trigger warning. We're mm -hmm. going to be talking about the death of children, adults, trauma, black trauma specifically. So major trigger yep. warning, y'all. So there was gloom and sadness still hang hanging in the air, but nobody thought that they were doing a death march to that pavilion. They were completely blindsided. Everyone's crowded around the pavilion, and what happens next is recorded on a 44-minute cassette tape known as the death tape. Jim Jones says, and I quote, one of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot and down comes the plane into the jungle. And we had better not have any of our children left when it's over because they'll parachute in here on us. Jim Jones questioned the People's Temple members if they really thought that their enemies would allow them to get away with this. Jim Jones said their children would be tortured. Their children and the seniors would be tortured and they couldn't stand for this. It was time to get the solutions together so that they could go to sleep. And if they can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. Now, Maria Katsaris, she begins to have a conversation with Jim Jones about the cyanide. And Jim Jones asked her if there was any way to make it less bitter and if it was quick. While there was no way to help with the taste, Maria said that death would be quick and painless. I want to get into some facts about cyanide poisoning really quick, y'all. I'm going to quote from the Poisoner's Handbook. Whether swallowed or inhaled, all members of the cyanide family kill in the same way. They shut down the body's ability to carry or absorb oxygen. The resulting corpse would be a textbook study on violent death marked by bruising discoloration, twisted by the last convulsions often eerily scented with cyanide's warning perfume, a faint fruity scent of almonds. The symptoms of acute poisoning proceed with almost lightning-like rapidity. Within two to five minutes after ingestion of the poison, the individual collapses, frequently with a loud scream. In lesser amounts, the poison kills more slowly, if faster than most toxic substances. The average survival after swallowing cyanide is between 15 to 45 minutes, so fast or slow, it is never a kind ending. The last minutes of a cyanide death are brutal, marked by convulsions, a desperate gasping for air, a rising blood of froth and vomit and saliva, and finally, a blessed release into unconsciousness, end quote. Now, does that sound painless? <laughs> that does not sound remotely painless. That sounds very painful. 15 yeah. to 45 minutes of going through that. Mm -hmm. That's that's a lengthy. Oof. Now, it can happen like that. Like, it can be quick. But it, it really can. just all depends on dosage, age, and weight. So, on the last day of Jonestown, on the final day, it's a Black woman who challenges Jim Jones, and her name is Christine Miller. She stood up to say that if we destroy ourselves, we're defeated. We worked too damn hard for this to end here now, like this. And she went on to ask about Russia and wanted to know why they had worked so hard for nothing. She said, and I quote, I look at all these babies and I think they deserve to live. 
Jim Jones shut her down and said, well, he looks at them and thinks that they deserve peace. The thing about it, y'all, is that Russia was never a true option, despite the information Jim Jones fed them during the meetings and white nights. There was never a plan to commit to building their utopia. It was always supposed to end like this. While Christine is calling Jim Jones out on all the unfulfilled promises he had made to them, armed guards began to circle the pavilion, and word got back to Jonestown that Congressman Leo Bryan was assassinated at the Port Katuma airstrip. This was another stage performance to make Jim Jones look as if he could see things before it happened, and eventually Christine Miller was shouted down by some of the devoted men and women of the temple. So... Tim Carter and his brother, they're at the pavilion when Maria Katsaris tapped them on the shoulders and basically told them Jim Jones has a job for you. They were supposed to deliver three suitcases of money that, and they were supposed to deliver it to the Russian embassy in Georgetown. Maria told them to complete this mission no matter the cost and take what they needed for survival. But at any point, if they were captured, they were to immediately kill themselves. She basically told them to have a good life and sent them on their way. No one knows why this money was supposed to go to the Russians, but Tim Carter believes it was Jim Jones's last fuck you to the United States. So this is when the Jonestown nurses and Larry Shad, they begin to snatch infants away from their mothers and families. And immediately a syringe was squirted into the mouths of the children. And this mm-hmm. wasn't a test of loyalty. This wasn't a drill. The babies began wailing and convulsing. They had been through these mock-ass drills so many times. A lot of people, even the survivors, they say like it was just a moment of shock. Absolute shock. Yeah. Like, this is really happening. We've been through this, this so many is really times, happening. but it was, it was always fake. So, yeah, no one was given the opportunity to choose if they wanted to live or die. Jim Jones told them that they could die by poison or by the armed guards. He said, and I quote, whoever wants to go with their children can get in line with them and that he thought it was humane. Now, the children had to die first, and this was strategic because how can any parent watch their children die like that and still have the will to live themselves? Mm-hmm. I know I wouldn't. I, I don't know. I can't even put myself there. Now, according to survivors, the atmosphere was very fast paced and it was hard to catch up with what was happening mentally. Like we always wonder, like, how is it that 900 people allowed this shit to go on? Exactly. Well, it, is, it is widely speculated today that the food in Jonestown that day was laced with tranquilizers to make everything go easier because that was a part, like if people tried to run from the people's temple, and they were caught, mm-hmm. they would be mm-hmm. drugged and back into submission of the temple. Like they had saw it happen with other people who had tried to run and they were caught prior. So Tim Carter, he witnessed his baby suffer from the poisoning and his wife died in his arms. He tells the story, but he always breaks down. Now, at one point, Maria Kutsaris, she gets on the mic and tells everyone that there's nothing to worry about and everybody should keep calm, try to keep their children calm. Maria told them that their children weren't crying from pain, but the poison was just bitter tasting. Now, the mic was pointed away from the crowd, but survivors said that the cries of suffering from these children was 
deafening, especially the the screams from Marceline and the other mothers. Now, Marceline was screaming at, to Jim Jones, like, what are you doing? Like, you can't fucking do this. And he knew that Marceline was adored at the People's Temple, if not as much as he was. She was adored. So her standing up to him mm-hmm. might cause others to do it as well. So he had to shut Marceline down and he knew that she lived for her children. And so, yeah, she had to make sure that he had to make sure that she had nothing else to live for. Now, Marceline was told that she had 40 minutes to die and join her children. So Jim Jones made it seem as if her kids were already dead. Meanwhile, they're back mm-hmm. trying to get to the U.S. Embassy to make sure that their mother's okay. On the tape, you can hear Marceline and the other mothers put up a fight for their lives as they watch the children of Jonestown suffer poisoning. And we're talking more than 300 children. Jim Jones can be heard saying to Marceline when her screams get to a certain peak, he goes, mother, mother, please don't do this. Lay down your life with your children, but don't do this. No later than 6 p.m., all of the children were dead, including John Victor, who had been taken back to Jim's cabin, and he was forcibly injected with the poison. And it was time for the adults to die, too. They said that survivors witnessed, I'm sorry, the survivors witnessed adults line up, and everyone who refused were held down, and syringes were plunged into their backs and arms and necks. Others walked to the podium willingly and thanked Jim Jones for all that he had done for them. All Jim Jones responded with was calling for more poison, and he could be heard saying, where's the vat, the vat with the green sea on it? Bring the vat so the adults can begin. Stanley Clayton is a survivor, and he witnessed people struggling because they did not want to die. And he lucked out because he was able to walk up to a guard. He took his chance. He said he did not want to die today. The guard told him to have a good life and let him pass. And he is one of the few survivors. While this massacre was occurring, Jim Jones rambled. Like that drugged out ramble that he would often do Mm -hmm. in the speakers. He said, we used to think this world was not our home. Well, it sure isn't. We said 1,000 people who said, we don't like the way the world is. Take our life from us. We laid it down. We got tired. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting an inhumane world. And then on the tape, you can hear the struggles and screams begin to die out until the tape just runs out. It just clicks off. I think, uh, I'm sorry, like I'm a little bit lost for words to be fair, because I'm a visionary person, like I'm vis- I'm very like mm-hmm. visual, and unfortunately, like I'm, I'm actually, in a weird way, visualizing this entire thing, and it's 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 just it's also because I've watched so many documentaries as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this this is the part where, at the t- and I think before we started doing this research, I thought you know everyone just kind of said, "Yep, we're gonna drink the cyanide," that was it. But then we eventually found out that. As you said, people were injected. Not everybody drank it. Not everybody drank it. Um, and some people are actually like, "No, I want to live." And in the end, mm. it, it's 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 a it's a mass murder in many cases. That's it's, all that it is. These people struggled. Excuse me, so hard. The concerned relatives who had stayed behind at Lamaha Gardens, they were waiting in anticipation to see who was coming back with Leo Ryan. All they knew at the time was that the flights were delayed due to defectors. Shortly after 7 p.m., the door swung wide open, but it wasn't who they expected. It was Jim Jones's sons, and they had frantically begun to question them on what went down in Jonestown. But at the time, nobody knew anything. 
His sons were ultimately worried for their mother, and they say this in books and interviews. Now their next stop for answers was to try the U.S. Embassy. The moment that eyes were off Sharon Amos, this punk-ass bitch of a woman, she takes her three children into a bathroom with a man named Chuck Beekman. Her children were 21, 10, and 9. Witnesses said that once the door closed, they heard odd sounds and blood began to leak from under the door. Inside the bathroom was a gory sight, y'all. Everyone outside of Chuck's throat had been slit. Sharon and her eldest had self-inflicted wounds to their necks, but her two youngest were murdered. Chuck Beekman was quickly arrested, but he claimed he was called in to witness, not murder. It wasn't until 9 p.m. that the U.S. State Department received word that something had gone awry. All that was known was that a truckload of whites attacked at the Katuma airstrip. The next day, the death of Leo Ryan was announced. It was unknown at first exactly how many died, and it didn't help that once the GDF got over their initial scare, they began to loot from the compound instead of investigating. Due to the heat and humidity, the bodies were in advanced stages of decomp, and maggots and decay had set in. Many of the bodies had burst open due to this decomposition, and among the dead lay Jim Jones. After witnessing the horrific deaths of the People's Temple members, he decided on a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Weird abscesses had formed on some of the bodies, and a Guyanese pathologist later testified this was caused by injections. The first phase reported 383 bodies, the second reported 408 bodies, and at this point the GDF and authorities, they start to believe that maybe some of the People's Temple members were in the jungle waiting to attack because this number wasn't even half of the population. They go back to check and to their horror, they hadn't accounted for the bottom layer of bodies, which consisted of the group that was first to die, which were infants and children. Mm. And it really just goes to show that these people, they died yeah. hugging hugging each other, hand in hand, holding their children. And so after a week of recovering bodies, the total went up to 909. Most of the bodies at Jonestown were transported to Do- Dover Air Force Base in Delaware for identification and notification of next of kin. Now, some relatives declined custody of their dead, and nearly 300 people were never identified. In this group were mostly children who were too young for records because they hadn't seen a dentist or a doctor. That just, that just killed me. So, yeah, that's, that's crazy. So everyone who had survived Jonestown, they went through the most intense questioning by the FBI and the public shamed them for being a part of the People's Temple. Everyone was suspected of being a part of the plot, and many had to go to therapy and change their names. Also, there was a lot of psychological traumas to get through. And then you have the Kool-Aid jokes, the Jonestown jokes. So, of course, the Guyanese government, they actually went back and forth with the United States on who was to blame. America wanted no parts in the accountability. And the fact that Jim Jones had government officials, the police, and other political figures in his corner, that was rarely discussed. The Guyanese government maintained Jonestown. They maintained Jonestown for a while. But then once they abandoned the compound, it only took a few years for the jungle to reclaim the territory. All that work that they had put mm, in and creating their paradise taken back by the jungle. So I want to go ahead and point out that the People's Temple members, 
primarily all the black members, they were trying to escape the racism that was going on in the United States. They were immediately shipped back and dealt with it times 10. It was horrible. Even the bodies of the people who died in Jonestown, they were mishandled. And a lot of that was due to racism. Those bodies were not taken care of the way that they should have been. And the only person who was ever really held accountable was Chuck Beekman um, for the role that he may or may not have played with Sharon A. Wilson and her family. And then Larry Layton. He went to jail and he served only 18 years for his role in the Port Katuma airstrip shootings. No one else was ever officially charged with the Jonestown deaths. So in May of 1979, the Guyana Emergency Relief Committee and groups formed by the San Francisco Council of Churches, they arranged to have 409 of the deceased transported across the country and buried in a mass grave at Evergreen Cemetery. The worst part about this is that even though Jim Jones was cremated and his ashes were scattered at sea, his name is engraved on that tombstone at the mass grave site. Now, the Jonestown Institute can tell y'all about the money that was seized by Guyana and the fight with the United States for those funds. And I will link their website in the show notes because, again, they'll have anything that you want to see. Remember earlier, I told y'all about the Mills family, how they defected from the group, their daughter. She was beaten 75 times with a paddle publicly. Mm -hmm. So Al, Jeannie, their daughter, Daffy, they were shot in their home. February of 1980, more than a year after the deaths in Jonestown. So, of course, there was a fear that, okay, everybody who survived Jonestown, they're coming to take us out. Mind you, they weren't the only people to die. A lot of people closest to Jim Jones were assassinated. And this might be because he had some powerful people in his pocket. It was assumed that, yeah, there was a hit squad taking everybody out. But their 17-year-old son, Eddie Mills, there was gunpowder residue found on his fingers, but he was never convicted of their deaths, and it still remains a mystery today. It's a cold case. Wow. It is a cold case. Oh, yeah. That is the story of Jonestown, y'all. This is going to be a long-ass episode. I must say, like, this episode is, it tugs at my heartstrings. You know, it's involving kids, innocent people. It's involving our own people, Black people, and how we were, I mean, yeah, yeah we I made a decision. To... I went to go take us. <laughs> I hear the, the shit all up in the camera, all up on the scene. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. I just wanted a little water. Five, four, three two one now this story is obviously extremely sad we're talking about innocent people we're talking about black people trying to look for for a a, you know some type of paradise that he was painting a picture of and in the end it's it turned out to just be a very you know it tugs at my heartstrings you got innocent babies innocent babies that were subjected to such a horrible death uh and then you have other people who were trying to escape and also subjected to a horrible death. And I gotta add, like, I do believe that, of course, we know Jim Jones ain't shit, but him, them, you know, them finding him with a self-inflicted wound, mm-hmm. he took, he that's a cop-out. He should have went the exact same way that the rest of his people went. He should have suffered the same amount of anguish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he copped out. 
That's how I see it. But, and then you mentioned the Mills family, you know, they changed their name. They were trying to just kind of, you know, slowly put it behind them and live their life. How does three people just come up cold case now? All dead at home. All dead at home. (sighs) It's just. Uh, Absolutely. And now there's, their son is living his best life. And I think Paris or something like that. So yeah. Ain't that about a bitch. (laughs) <laughs> that about a bit Fuck jim jones and his stinking ass that is a man yep. with the unwashed ass y'all i hope y'all listen if y'all if you made it to the fucking end of this you're a goddamn trooper for <laughs> real for real for real for real you're a trooper and i love y'all a long time now if you tuned in and rocked with me you can show your support by giving me a five-star review on apple and spotify AJ, I want to say I am so grateful that you joined with me today <laughs> to hear me talk about this because you were just as immersed into this as I was. So I greatly appreciate you coming on and please tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah, no doubt. I'm I'm very glad to unfortunately take this bum ass roller coaster of Jim Jones, but I'm glad to kindly get the fuck off. I don't know about you but I'm ready to get off. Um, yeah. Y'all can find me on Instagram at dope life coach underscore. And you can also find me on TikTok at uh dope life coach. And yeah, go ahead. Check me out. I also have a podcast myself called the dope life podcast. And I'm always looking for more people to come in and, you know, join the dope life network. So come through. Now, if you want to send me an email, please reach out to blackgirltrucompodcast at gmail.com. My TikTok is ksmo93. My Insta is blackgirl underscore truecrimepodcast. And don't be scared to reach out to me with case suggestions. Now, on the next episode, I will be going over reviews. Uh, So if you have left me a review, just be prepared for a shout out. And I'm going to be doing that at the beginning of the next episode. So y'all watch out for that. And thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. Y'all take care.